Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specified, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials coding and construction industry. Each episode will tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Jim Estill, who's the owner and president of Danby Appliances. Jim has been an entrepreneur for his entire life, growing a technology distribution business from the trunk of his car to more than 350 million in sales. After selling his business to Synex, he grew the Canadian division from 800 million to 2 billion. He was also investor, advisor, and board member at RIM BlackBerry and served as a founding director for 13 years. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So we connected, I believe, about 11 years ago, and you've always been very humble and open to sharing, sharing your knowledge. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you. So, Jim, were you always sort of involved in business and, and so entrepreneurial? Yeah, I think I've been entrepreneurial since I was very young, but most of it happened more or less by accident. My father asked me to paint a fence and showed me how, and then a neighbor said, oh, can you paint my fence? And next thing you know, I'm painting fences and then houses. And, and I had some success, a taste of success when I was young doing that. So when I was in university, I just figured I would start my own business always. And and once you start your own business, I actually would be a terrible employee because I work for <laughs> myself. So tell me about those. Let's go to that technology distribution business. Tell me about those earlier years. What did that look like for you? So I'm a, an engineer, systems design engineer, and I needed a computer to design some circuit boards, but I got a better deal if I bought two of them. And I've always been sort of a deal seeker. So I bought two and I sold one and then someone else wanted one. So I bought another two. And someone wanted a printer, someone wanted some software. So pretty soon I'm buying and selling computer hardware, software peripherals. And the reason it goes that I started from the trunk of my car is I lived in university residence at the time. I started, which is my fourth year university, and it was the most secure place I had for my <laughs> stuff. And back then, simple things like a disk drive or memory was worth hundreds of dollars. Yeah. It was very valuable. So I was selling small, portable parts that were worth a lot. So that's just basically buying and selling computer products. And then I took the engineering design part of the business and I grew, grew both sides and I ran out of space. <laughs> so I decided on the engineering design part, I'd sell half of it to the engineers who were doing the design. And that business is still in business today. The name of the company is Connect Tech and they've got about 50 employees and they're yeah. successful and it's been a great ride. But the Distribution part of the business grew to, as you say, 350 million in sales. And I sold to Cynics and ran Cynics. And then I retired. <laughs> so, when you were kind of scaling it out in the very beginning, what sort of challenges did you encounter? I, I know that every stage of the business, there's different challenges that come up. How did you overcome them? So, the biggest challenge, which I think is what most businesses face, is I didn't have any money. But what that did is it created a massive degree of frugality and work ethic. So if I needed something, 
I would do it myself because I couldn't afford to hire someone to do it. And that forget and same thing if I needed a table for the trade show, I'd take my kitchen table and I'd cover it with a piece of fabric that I'd buy at the fabric store and I'd make the sign and I would do it all myself. And that frugality has stuck with me. And I think that was part of the frugality. And part of the frugality, of course, my parents were Depression era. And so they sort of passed on this fear that there will be nothing, no money. But in business, having a frugality, and people confuse cheap with frugal, it's not the case. But being frugal and trying to get value for the money has served me very well because I've largely been in competitive businesses. I don't have monopolies. I'm just competing with everybody else who has substantially similar products. Ah, interesting. So being uh, frugal is one of your keys. What about some of the other keys? Like you're in a competitive business. Is, uh, was customer service part of that in terms of delivering on? Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a competitive business, it's all about the little things. Like the, in an ideal business, I'd love to say, oh, I'm the only one that owns this <laughs> technology and it's patented and nobody else has anything like I have. But when you're selling something that everybody else has, it's all the little things. So customer service is absolutely one of the little things. And probably the reason you're talking to me today is because I reply to my email, because I return <laughs> my calls, yeah. because I reach out, you know, I, when someone reaches out on LinkedIn to connect, I connect. And so I'm, I tend to be open, available, and I build systems to deal with whatever volume happens, which I think is another secret to success is whatever your volume is, you have to build process and systems to be able to handle that volume. Well, can you describe some of these systems that you're referring to? Some of your key systems? Well, early on in business, I wasn't developing my systems well. I was getting stressed, had too much to do. So I just said, okay, so I've got a time management problem. So I went out and I read every book I could get my hands on on time management. I researched it, went to courses, and I actually ultimately wrote a book on time management. So there's so many techniques around time management. I'll give you one secret, and that's I like the Pomodoro system. What you do in that system is you close all your windows, close all your, take all the papers on your desk, put them behind you. You just start with your single task you're going to work on for 25 minutes. So you work heads down, 25 minutes, no phone, no email, and then take a break. And the system technically is take a break for five minutes and go back and do another 25 minutes. I have found that system to be so intense. I have a hard time in a 10-hour day getting four Pomodoros in or five Pomodoros in. You think, oh, 10-hour day, you should be able to get 20 in. It doesn't work that way because I've got all the little maintenance things of a call to return and an email and stuff. And 25 minutes is not so long that you would feel rude. You'd say, oh, Jim didn't return my call. Well, you don't need, or my email. Mm-hmm. I didn't return your email in 25 minutes. You're not going to say Jim's rude. You're going to say, <laughs> what's the big deal, right? Yeah. So intense focus while you're doing that. Exactly. How do you prioritize going into that system? Because priority is probably key of, of sort of selecting the tasks, right? That you, you throw into this. Well, exactly. Yes. And really, time management is more about priority management than it is about time management. It's all about the priorities. And that has to do with what are your goals yep. and what are the actions that tie to the goals. So it's absolutely what, what I do is to set what are my goals? Therefore, what are the actions that tie to these goals? And then they become the priorities that I'm going to spend a Pomodoro on. And I've just told you I can only get three in in a day. Mm. It means that Pomodoro is a very valuable unit for me. So I'm not going to be wasting it on 
something that's not on the top of my list. So do you sort of advocate this for your team or do you help your team with time management or how does that sort of reflect organizationally? So absolutely. I do a seminar with all of my staff on time management and I pass around my book on time management. The key with time management though, and I call it time leadership because leadership is about direction and goals. Management is about doing things more efficiently. And you need both, but mostly you need to be effective, which is what leadership's all about. But my key on that is there's no one answer. There's lots of little answers. And the way I do it is not the only way. It just happens to be one way for me and someone else in the organization might have a different system that works. I mean, one other thing I like in time management is what I call the power of while. Mm. What can I do while I'm doing something else? And so I'm a health guy. And I would do two walking meetings a day, sometimes three or four. And so, yes, we could sit in my office, but why not go for a little stroll? And that's, you know, it's outdoors. It's, it's just better than sitting in my office. That's the power of while. And everyone thinks I'm extremely well-read, and I do read a lot of books. But a lot of that is the power of while. While I'm driving, I listen to audible books. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do. So how about communication? You, you touched on it a bit earlier. Like you, you get emails from people and, and you try to respond to them. How do you, how do you manage the inflow of uh, emails? I mean, obviously you're, you sort of are very visible out there. So I'm assuming you get a lot of sort of incoming sort of emails and responses. So Right. So I have an awesome assistant. So that's one of my, part of my assistant deals with things. I also tend to be fairly succinct. I'm sure even in our email communication, you've seen that I, I'm not sending you a two-page email. Yeah. I also believe that more people fail from perfection than speed. Mm. So I don't tend to try to be perfect on my responses, unless, of course, you're saying, oh, this is going on national television or you know something like that. Rather, I try to be fast. Mm-hmm. It's just the way you do these podcasts. You could be perfect. And you could do audio editing and you could spend 20 hours on each one of these because every time there was a, a little something noise you heard in the background <laughs> or, or whatever. But the value you get by doing that perfection probably is not worth the extra time. And many times we add perfection, but it's not adding value to the customer that gets it. Mm. Prime example I can think of is the whole world's running around saying, oh, I'm going to do Delivery in two hours. I'm going to deliver in three hours. Isn't this great? Instant delivery. 95% of what I order online, I'm not in that rush, much of a rush. Mm. Yeah, I wanted, to read the, I wanted to read the book, but I didn't need it today in three hours. I'm running out of vitamin D. Yeah, I wanted the vitamin D, but it's, I'm not urgent rush. I'm out, I'm out for two days. It's not going to kill me. And so this drive to perfection, which has a cost associated with it, often doesn't add value for the, the receiver. It sounds like when you run your business with you sort of try to find what's sort of optimal, like, you know, in terms of getting the value out of it, but you, you're not trying to strive for perfection. I heard you touch on this and I think you're big on trying different things. And you mentioned, I think I heard you mentioned failing cheaply. And I I want to dive into that a bit more because I'm interested in that. So one of the things I always say is, fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. And essentially, failure is a way to find out whether it's something good to do. 
So I could decide I want to bring out a product and I'm going to call a thousand customers and I'm going to hold focus groups and I'm going to do a whole bunch of stuff. Or alternatively, I could bring out a product and sell some. Yeah. And worst case, I only sell a hundred and find, oh, that's a bad product. Nobody wants to buy it. And I have to throw some in the dumpster or discount them or do something like that. Yeah. Best case, I find it sells, but it's fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. The other part to that is having a failure does not make you a failure. Mm -hmm. So you will try something and find, oops, that didn't quite work, but that's okay. It doesn't make you a failure. You didn't fail for trying. More people fail by not trying and not trying means you'll never win. Mm. So I'm not going to step up to bat because I might get struck out. But if I don't step up to bat, I'll never hit a home run and Mm -hmm. I'll never hit a single because I didn't step up to bat. So being safe is not always the solution. And when you run a company, the corollary to that is build a failure culture Mm. where you don't zap people for trying and you don't zap people for having minor failures. You reward them. You say, oh, that's great. You tried to see whether this would work and we figured out it didn't. That's good. But as long as it's fail often, fail fast and fail cheap, where where you have a cultural issue is when they don't fail cheap. (laughs) Well, how do you approach failing cheap? Because some things require a bit more risk. What are your strategies around trying to fail cheap? Well, an example is a lot of the products that Danby Appliances make, they need molds and dyes. And there's a way you can make a mold or a dye for $50,000. The problem is a $50,000 dye is only good to make 5,000 pieces. And I wouldn't want to do something if I'm only make 5,000 pieces, but I'm better off to spend that 50,000 than to spend a million dollars on a proper dye that can turn out a million pieces. And because then I'll learn that, gee, we should have made it thicker in this point and a different curve on that. And, and the customers don't like it. And overall, my actual expense is a little bit higher because you have to spend your $50,000 up front and then you have to spend a million dollars to do the final production version. So it's a million and $50,000. It's not just a million, but that's an example of failing cheap. And whenever I buy a product, so some of the products we just, we don't make, we just bring in, I always say, what's the minimum order quantity? And then I try to negotiate them down from that. <laughs> great. Minimum, minimum order quantity is 1,000. Okay, great. Can we take 500? Can we take 200? And, and just see how little you can get just to try it. Yeah. Even though they say, oh, yeah, you want, if you're only going to want to buy 100 of those, we have to charge you an extra $20. Okay, great. Charge me an extra $20. I just paid an extra $2,000, which theoretically is not very frugal and not very... But that way, I don't fail by bringing 1,000 in. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned being frugal and doing stuff yourself. What sort of things don't you do yourself, though? What do you sort of bring in versus sort of develop from the inside? So the things I bring in that I don't do ourselves are things where we don't have competitive advantage. So if I don't have a competitive advantage in making something, I will take someone else's product and make it. An example Danby does not make electric kettles, but we sell an electric kettle. We do not make blenders, but we sell a blender. So we take someone else's blender. They already designed it. Oh, they've sold a million of them. They know how to design them. They're good, better at designing them than we are. Let them design them. And then our part and our value add in that is, oh, we have a distribution network. We have a name in the market that people are comfortable with. We've got salespeople calling on the appropriate customers. So we're, we're using our competitive advantage, which in that case happens to be brand and distribution network, but the other company that makes them are using their competitive advantage, which is knowledge in the electric kettle 
market. Absolutely. I guess you are kind of an expert in the distribution game. I guess that would be the similarities, I guess, between your businesses. Yes, to some extent. Danby is a distribution business to some extent, although it's also a manufacturer. And Danby, when I bought it, was not a technology company, yeah. but I'm using it as a platform to bring out technology products. So like, yes, our bread and butter is making freezers and wine coolers and fridges and bar fridges. That's bread and butter and that pays most of the bills. But I changed the way I'm thinking to saying we make big boxes. So we make big boxes. Let's make a smart parcel mailbox that sits on your front porch to get your Amazon shipments. And by changing the way I think of it, it, that's not really an appliance. It's a smart parcel mailbox that sends you an email or text when you get a parcel and tells you it weighs three pounds and you can look at the IP camera. So it's a tech product, but it needs someone who can handle big boxes, which is what we can do. And it plays on our distribution network through Costco and Home Depot and Lowe's and Canadian Tire and such. Interesting. So how are you managing that transition to become more of a technology company? I mean, to some extent, it's fail off and fail fast, fail cheap. Yeah. To some extent, it's we keep the ball spinning and doing what we do well, and we try adding other things. And the interesting thing is we add other things, it helps us be more efficient in the core business. So if I take what we do and sell another half million units, all of a sudden, all of our costs are a little lower because we don't need to hire a second CFO and we don't need to hire, we may or may not need more warehouse space and we don't need another salesperson and we don't need, so the greater our sales volume, and that makes us more efficient. So when someone goes and buys a bar fridge, oh, our bar fridge can maybe be priced a little better or have a few features added. And appliances to some extent are adding some technology features as well, especially things like air conditioners. Absolutely. So we're talking about technology. You were on the board of Rim Blackberry for 13 years. What did you learn there? Well, that was like a rocket. <laughs> when I joined the board of Blackberry, I joined before they were public. Yeah. My company was bigger than Blackberry. Yeah. So my sales were bigger. I think I had more employees. I was public by then. So I was running a public company. And then what happened is their growth rate was like, they grow more in a quarter than I grow in two years. And so they were just meteoric growth, basically right up until I left the board in 2010. They were almost right through the top. So I went from just a couple hundred employees to 10,000 employees and 15,000 employees. Was there anything that sort of stood out as something that you, you learned from there, though? There's so many things that stand out. <laughs> I'm trying to think, is there, is there one thing? Okay, so one thing that stands out, growth management is different than management. Oh. So to some extent, you can outgrow your people, but the key is not to outgrow your process. So you have to keep your processes continually changing. Of course, BlackBerry is also a technology company, so constantly looking at other technologies, but at the same time, you're looking at what adds value. And part of the early days in BlackBerry, their advantage was what they didn't add to their product. It was the simplicity rather than what they did add to their product. Mm -hmm. Because we could have made a BlackBerry that you could shave with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got the electrics and just put a blade on. And No, you have to control yourself in what you can do. And that's a flaw that I do see in technology because technology is capable of doing so much the question is, do you want to have that feature and does it add value? And I have to ask that when Danby's doing appliances, people say, oh, we want to add IoT to 
bar fridges. Okay, so what are you going to do with that? Like, what's it going to do? Oh, I'm going to keep a grocery list. Is that really a value? Or if you want to have a grocery list, why don't you just get an app? Like this, you don't need it to be on a bar fridge. So people can sometimes add technology because they love technology and think it's sexy, but it doesn't add value to people's life. And I remember telling my staff that I want to design products that my mother could use. Mm. At, at the time, she was like 86 years old and, and she had problems using what we would consider simple appliances like microwaves because they, people had added functions like cooking lamb chops. And like, really? I mean, <laughs> what do people need to do? You need to like heat the product, right? You yeah. need to heat something and turn it off and it's much simpler. How do you turn it on? How do you turn it off? And Mostly, I just use it to reheat. I don't use it. To, I don't use a microwave to cook anything. Mm-hmm. It's to reheat something, right? Yeah. Now you talked about sort of having your processes stay ahead of your growth. In a practical sense, how do you do that? I mean, do you have planning sessions? Do you get ideas from outside? Because ultimately, you're going to have to alter your processes quite a bit as you evolve, right? Give up few and bring new ones in. And how do you stay ahead of it? Yeah. So what I do is when I'm doing 50 million in sales, I look at what are companies that are doing 100 million in sales doing. Yeah. When I'm doing 10,000 transactions a day, what are companies doing 50,000 transactions doing? So I'm constantly scanning and trying to learn from what other people are doing, but it comes into the fail off and fail fast, fail cheap and say, oh, great, they're doing that. Why don't we try that? Another thing to do is to build a growth culture or a change culture. And there's many people who say they like change, but we tend to not like change. Mm -hmm. And what I learned about scaling a business is it tends not to be what else, what new you do. A lot of it is what you give up. Mm -hmm. So I can remember the day I decided that I was not going to take any more orders from customers. Mm -hmm. And that's really tough when you're in a sales business. And what's my life? Oh, you you want to order a thousand units? Great. Here's a a thousand units. Let me check the inventory for you. What's your price on it? Okay, you get them for $100 each. As soon as I had to say, you have to talk to Fred on that. I can't give you price. It, it, it killed me because of course I could give the guy pricing. Of course I could see how many's in stock. But I was finding I was spending all my time on the doing and not enough time on the the higher level working on the business, not in the business. Mm-hmm. So it was a change of thought. So thinking of what will I give up, and on my time management, I not every day, but every three months, every two months. I log, how do I spend my time? And then I look, what things on my spending my time should I give up? Because my future success is based on what I give up more than what I take on. And another concept is plug, plug, unplug. If I'm going to plug in something new, it only works if I'm going to unplug something. So if I'm going to take on a new product, okay, am I going to, what am I going to unplug? How am I going to handle the new, the new volume? Or more on my own personal time. If I'm going to take on a new board, where's that time going to come from? Mm-hmm. And the natural inclination is for people to say, oh, I'll just work a little harder. Oh, I'll just <laughs> fit it in. Yeah. I'll sleep a little less. Well, no, you can't sleep a little less. You can't be a little more ambitious. You're going to have to take some other thing off of your list. Yeah, definitely. I, I see that the tendency sometimes that people that have, they overestimate what they can get done in a day and they, they beat themselves up over it when they can't get it done. <laughs> but, uh, That's right. Well, and, and the, the saying is people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a day and underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade. Yeah. And that I found to be true. And that partly goes back to the goal setting. If you know what your big goals are, 
you can tend to get a lot done in a decade. But you don't get much done today. Yeah. And it doesn't even feel like you're getting anything done. Yeah. And the same thing is same thing is true of health. Yeah. Like I I could eat an extra ten calories a day and next year I'd weigh one more pound and the year after that I weigh another pound, another pound, another pound. Ten years from now I weigh ten pounds more. Hmm. Or I could uh eat ten calories less, right? <laughs> so little things over a long period of time make a difference. Exactly. Yeah. So you've achieved a lot of success in your career and stuff. What do you think the, the turning point for you were, was where you thought you've sort of transformed yourself or you felt like you got to that next level? Where is that sort of point in your life or career where you felt transformed? So I'm not sure I ever felt transformed. Mm. And even to this day, I don't yet feel highly successful. Mm. I feel I have much more to accomplish and much more to do. And part of that is I think if I feel if I've arrived, ah. that I will start to decay. Ah. So I, and you mentioned earlier, humility is one of my values. And so if I think that I've, I mean, if I think I'm great, don't interview me. That's crazy. I'm not yet great. I need to polish. I need to be better. I need to keep learning. As soon as I stop learning, I'll start shrinking. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Who do you sort of look to as your mentors or the companies that are doing great things that you sort of are interested in? I love reading biographies of great people, obvious. And so many of my people that I follow are the old time people like Warren Buffett is an obvious one, but I like the innovation of Steve Jobs. I didn't particularly like the way he treated some people, but part of the key is to take the good parts in people and copy those and modify them and make them more what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And some of the other people that I learn from, I actually can learn from anybody, even if I only one, learn one little piece, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now on your LinkedIn profile, it says, I'm a humanitarian trying to do the right thing. Can you explain that to me? Sure. I mean, my purpose in life is to help as many people as possible achieve their greatest potential. I'm just trying to do the right thing. And Danby Appliance's tagline, as a matter of fact, on the front of the building and on my business cards, it says, do the right thing. And that's actually a great and easy way to run a business. How do you treat your coworkers? Do the right thing. How do you treat your customers? Do the right thing. How do you treat your suppliers? Do the right thing. And in the world, I'm trying to do the right thing. That's just my purpose in life. And knowing that as the purpose, it actually means you can filter decisions and makes it easy. So when people come and say, oh, someone's beating us on Amazon, because they're cheating, putting out fake reviews. We need to put up some fake reviews. <laughs> oh, do the right, do the right thing. Yeah. Don't put up fake, fake reviews. There's no more discussion here, guys. Yeah. Like it's simple, and so there's a simplicity and do the right thing, and it's an easy, it's an easy guide. Yeah. So from the company culture, that's that makes a lot of sense. I think you're also involved in some personal projects as well. Do you mind sort of letting us in on that? Sure. I mean, the one I'm most known for is I sponsored 89 refugee families to come to Guelph. And I have another 59 people, not families, coming in in 2019. So I sort of became the refugee poster child and got a lot of press on that. The Do the Right Thing extends a lot beyond that. That was a big project. I didn't think it was as big as what the press made it, though. Yeah, It's just do the right thing. I mean, there's humanitarian crisis. What's the small piece that I can do? And it is a tiny piece. There's, a, there's millions of people who are displaced. And the difference between a refugee and an immigrant is immigrants decided to come here. Yeah. Refugees had no choice. Yeah. 
someone bombed their house and took all their stuff and they're forced to come here. It's like me sending you to Russia. You don't speak the language. They don't recognize your credentials and you don't have anything. It's not, we just have to help people through that hard time. Our job's not to help people stay on that hard time. Absolutely. What are some of the other things that you've been involved in that isn't so public? Well, I'm pretty big around some of the Guelph projects. Like the, I try to help the hospitals and my family's done a lot for the Arboretum and Salvation Army. And see, I, I get criticized sometimes. Why don't you help people at home? Well, most of my philanthropy has actually been helping people at home. Yeah. And in the local community, we support, like it would literally be 500 local charities. Wow. It's just, it's just hundreds. Like there's hardly a charity locally that doesn't <laughs> approach us to get something we <laughs> freely give. The reason I'm actually working is to do the most good that I can. I retired, moved to New York for five years, was doing angel and venture capital. And I, my dad got sick, so I moved back to Guelph. But I started running a business again because I like running a business. And that's where I get my most leverage. But my purpose, I can achieve my purpose more leveraging it through a company like Danby yeah. than, than saying, okay, I'm going to sit on a volunteer board and I'm going to do a bit of coaching. Like that doesn't, doesn't give me the leverage that it does when I've got a company. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. It's very good. Is there anything I should have asked you, but didn't? Not that I can think of. If you're looking for a final word of advice, yeah. it's all about habits. Yeah. Habits make the person. We're the product of what we repeatedly do. And habits mean that you don't need to have willpower. Yeah. So you don't need to have any willpower to brush your teeth because it's a habit. And one habit trick is to tie a good habit that you want to do to a habit you already do. So every time you brush your teeth, do three push-ups. Well, if you're down there doing three push-ups, you're probably not going to do three. You're probably going to do four or five and, and grow from there. So that's one habit habit that I have. Oh, very nice. Jim, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's, it was very valuable. I'm definitely going to review this a few times. <laughs> There's definitely some great stuff in there. So thank you so much for that. And I want to thank the listeners for listening today to Specified. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.